You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hey everyone, I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. I've been blogging at MessyJesusBusiness.com since 2010. Messy Jesus Business, the blog, and now the podcast, explores how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. Now, on to our guest. Sister Mumbi Kaguta was born and raised in Kenya. She has worked with diverse, vulnerable populations, including stints with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the United Nations Population Fund, and the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. Sister Mumbi currently lives on the south side of Chicago and serves as an international consultant for Jesuit Refugee Services under the Reconciliation and Social Cohesion Department. She graduated from Catholic Theological Union with a Master of Arts in Justice Ministry and a Certificate in Pastoral Ministry, and she holds an MBA in Marketing. Her theological interests center around womanist and Africana interpretations and understanding of God and contextual realities. In this episode of Messy Jesus Business, we talk with Sister Mumbi about her journey to becoming a sister and how to discern one's own vocation. We also discuss what it means to welcome women from other cultures into community. Then we get into the mess of reconciliation what it means, how restorative justice supports reconciliation, and how to continue the work even when we struggle to have faith in God's presence amid the suffering. Enjoy! Sister Mwombi, welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Thank you. So glad you could come to join us today. I love all the ways that we get to spend time together through giving voice. The movement for sisters under age 50 here. Um, well, it's not just, in, it's based in Chicago where you and I both are, but here we are meeting on the Zoom screen <laughs> and our paths have crossed in other places too, such as Colby House, the jail ministry center here in the Archdiocese of Chicago, giving voice functions. I just feel like I see you all over the place. <laughs> and, I'm, and don't forget Chicago Catholic nuns. Right, Chicago Catholic nuns and the monthly vigils, that, that homicide vigils at the end of every month in a different place throughout the city, we pray for someone who's, who's been killed uh, because of gun violence. Yeah. So you're not from Chicago. <laughs> and No, I'm not from Chicago. And especially during winter, I don't claim Chicago at all. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you, a, a beautiful woman from, from Kenya, end up joining a community in the United States and becoming the person you are today, living here in Chicago and, and ministering in a lot of different ways? So I think the person I, I am today, there are lots of factors pre, pre-convent life, pre-religious life that contributed to that. And, and part of it is just my mom and 
people who are, who knew my mom as a young girl keep telling that I'm growing, tell me that I'm growing more and more into her. But um, I think it was in pursuit of God and a, a home where I could live out my vocation um, freely and authentically. I had been in the U.S. for three years in the early 2000s as a member of a different Precious Blood congregation and. Um, that is when I met one of the sisters in my current congregation and we hit it off. Uh, and I'm very blessed to be living with her right now, but uh, we stayed in touch and I spent some three months with her as a novice in my previous congregation, uh, working with her. And we stayed in touch even after I returned to Kenya as a sister in a different congregation. And when I discerned that that was not the right home for me, she said, why don't you come and join us? And I said, well, last time I checked, she didn't have any African members or actually members of color apart from two Chilean sisters. And uh, she said, well, I'll have, to, let me ask, like you can't lose anything by asking. And that ask turned into a conversation with leadership and eventually almost four years later, I also was ready to make the move and came and spent some time in Ohio. Then uh, school brought me to Chicago, coming to CTU to study theology, and I stayed on. So I do love Chicago, even though I don't claim it during winter. I love the diversity. I love the diversity of the people, of the cultures. I think Chicago has so much to offer. So I feel very much at home here. Uh, there's a significant Kenyan community, but... Um, there's also a significant like social activist community and people that you meet who you can you have similar passions and similar views and so Chicago has a bit of everything uh, that I enjoy so I love living in Chicago but a lot of who I am I credit to strong women in my family it's a joke we have uh, in my family that we are all really strong women especially from my mother's side it is that and the freedom my family gave me to explore my passions and desires I don't come from a Catholic family. So even them supporting these changes in my life of having tried several different careers before making the choice to become a sister and them supporting me even when they didn't fully understand what this entailed and then supporting me when I made the choice to leave my previous community, take a gap year out where I worked and then make this leap to move to a community which they knew nothing about but yeah. always trusting and supporting me and letting me know that I have a home when if things don't work out but also that they want me to be happy and their happiness is when I am happy so it's the wind beneath my wings that I know that I have their unreserved support no matter which life path I choose yeah what is a, a vocation then for from your point of view and and also what's the name of the community that you entered so I am currently a sister of the Precious Blood of Ohio. And the reason I add Ohio is that there are several Precious Blood congregations. I was in a different Precious Blood congregation. There's a group in O'Fallon, Missouri. Uh, I know there's a group in Chile. And I know there's an Italian group. So the adding on the location just helps to differentiate us. And what a vocation is for me is, uh, it's really on the bottom of my email signature. <laughs> I say it's where the world's greatest need and your passion meet, and that is your vocation. Mm, that's the, uh, was it Friedrich Buchner? Yeah. 
I know we have kind of appropriated the word in religious circles, like a vocation is only thought about in terms of are you called to be a sister, brother or priest, but no, mm. it's much wider. And it's not just about um, the state of singleness of marriage or about life. It's also where do you use your skills and your abilities? Where, where, where do you flourish? And where through that flourishing of self do others flourish? Because it's not a one-sided thing. A vocation is really a, a margin and a meeting place mm-hmm. of equals where your skills and talents either call out those of others or give others space to flourish or through that collaboration of ideas. It's this mosaic. We are all contributing to this greater plan that God has for the world. So how did you know that the sisters of the precious blood of Ohio <laughs> were, would be the place where, where this would all converge for you? I didn't. I think there's so much about our life that is about trust. Um, I had lived with them for four months. It's very different. And that was quite a few years ago. It was maybe 10 years before I came. And um, 10 years is a long time. And (laughs) things change, you know. And um, so there was that bit. I also knew coming in, I would be the first African member. So that's also something that I had to process but their communication with me throughout the process and their honesty and they are willing to engage in those conversations about how do we create space for Mombi, this new younger woman from a different culture coming in who has religious life experience so she's like not coming in completely blind so she's been a sister and lived in that space so those conversations and when donna went and asked whether this would be possible the president herself began writing to me and i've always been struck by that Mm. and then when i said give me more time and i cut off communication she respected that that i needed time to really this was a huge life choice i mean as i said it took almost four years and then when i go back in touch she was like "Hmm." she actually wrote and said this definitely seems to be of God. And she put me in touch with the vocation director. Mm. So these are women I had had not met. I had not even met when I lived in Ohio before. Mm -hmm. Their communication and their support of me as I transitioned out of my old community to that year that I spent out and all the challenges that come with that. And it's not just the practical things of, oh, you have a job, you have a place to stay. It's it's the emotional stuff. You have just left a way of life. And they were so supportive throughout. And it's when finally uh, I made a decision or <laughs> they encouraged me to make the decision to come. And I had written to them and said, let me come for a visit. And they said, why don't you come and stay? And I remember that when I read that email, I was like, this is a huge decision. <laughs> mm-hmm. But finally I prayed and I and I talked with my friends who had been part of this process and like the way they have been uh, relating with you is already a, a great indicator of who they are mm-hmm. and who they want to be for you. So making that decision, then their support through that process, that's the immigration part, you're in a different country. Uh, how many sisters were praying for me who had never laid eyes on me. Uh, one of them was dying of cancer. I never got to meet her. And, and she, she was just praying for the immigration process to be smooth. Um, and then to the letters I got from the community I was coming to live with before coming, asking me things like, what is your favorite food or drink so we can make sure you have it oh, and welcome. To arrive in, in Dayton uh, around, 2.31 afternoon to find in about nine sisters waiting for me. 
Uh, so these were all like little uh, confirmations and you can see I'm getting emotional thinking about it, but I have spent time thinking about it in light of um, welcome invocations from diverse cultures, which is something that I think many congregations are grappling with right now. What does it mean to be a welcoming presence, a hospitable presence? But those things like they had a sign written welcome in Swahili at the airport. Oh. Uh, they had all been in a meeting, but they stopped the meeting to all come to the airport just to get me. So my work was literally to point out my suitcases and they took care of it and took me to the house. And, and to that weekend after arriving, after about five days, we had our congregational gathering to the, the way the president introduced we were three at that time. So there was one who was ahead of me who was from Guatemala and uh, there was Lakisha, the first African-American. So we were all the first from our cultural backgrounds to the welcoming speech the president uh, gave in front of the entire congregation to the resounding like standing ovation that the sisters gave clapping for us saying welcome. Yeah. So all these were like samples that this is home. But since then, of course, the honeymoon period kind of ends, <laughs> but seeing how my community is willing to work with me in how do we inculcate precious blood spiritually? What does it mean for you as an African woman? What does it mean for you to be a sister of the precious blood in a community where the median age is double what my age is? How are you doing fine? Are you finding community outside of our community? Are you finding Kenyans you can connect to? Do you have what you need to flourish to, to now after BLM uh, this summer and how it has confronted us to realizing that we also need to do work as a community uh, to ensure that members of Black, Indigenous and people of color within the community feel safe and valued and loved. Yeah. The willingness to stretch themselves for me is every day, yes, I can make a step in faith. And, as and I believe as long as people are willing to dialogue around even what might be difficult topics and situations, then this, this is home for me. My community is my home. And, uh, and even in supporting me to pursue ministries in areas that they hadn't been involved in. So it's a one day at a time process. And, uh, and sometimes you do need to spend some time reminding yourself why, because there are days you wake up and everything seems to be a bit dreary. Everything seems to be dreary or working towards against you, but that's when you reflect and you realize that what is the total sum of this narrative? And you realize that it's a Paschal mystery. You're just going through a little bit of suffering and death and usually that means there's new life sprouting or new beginnings sprouting. So, mm. yeah. Mm. You know, I'm hearing a lot about the importance of authentic relationship and a strong faith in your, in your journey. I wonder if there's any advice you have to offer for a woman who might be discerning religious life. I think when I've talked to a lot of our sisters, even in my community, some who have been doing this for 60, 65 years, is um, we come for different reasons. And sometimes they are not this well thought out intellectual, theological choices. We are attracted by somebody, a sister, 
we are attracted by even the symbols of the congregation, whether it's dress or the cross or the, you know, we are attracted by the ministries communities do or what they're involved in or what their statements are. Uh, we might be attracted to the vocation promoter who tend to be very outgoing, vivacious, kind people. And there's nothing wrong with all of that. This is why there's a period of inquiry, of discernment, of candidacy. I think one of the questions is, are you able to be authentic self? It takes effort each day to kind of put on a persona as a sister or as a brother or as a priest. I think there's a problem. Yes, there's metanoia that happens, there's growth and transformation, and that is expected of every Christian. It's not just for religious people, but it should not be punitive. It, it shouldn't feel like it's a punitive process to grow into this person that God is continually calling you to. Uh, is there a space for healing? We are all wounded creatures. Yeah. It doesn't matter what kind of background you came from. Different things have wounded us. So is there a space for healing? Are they creating space for you to heal? That for me is a very important uh, aspect of, are you in the right place? But then it's the dialogue, authentic, contemplative dialogue, where your voice matters, your opinion matters. And um, there's an ability to have honest conversations. There's an ability for all parties to own up that, yes, we were wrong. We have made a mistake. That is very important. Many people describe it as feeling at home, like they visited a certain community amongst many others, or some, some people don't uh, do the whole dating five congregations at a time yeah, right. but I, god works with our personalities and who we are there are those people in life who send out 20 job applications there are those people who apply for one job this is a product of our personalities and so many yeah. things it's the same with religious life there are women who visited 15 congregations before they made up their mind there are people like me who met my first community joined them then <laughs> dated my current one and joined <laughs> I have no experience with common seas and stuff like that. I never participated in those things. Yeah. Uh, but I see this in other aspects of my life. I apply for one job at a time. So this is who I am and God knows who I am and God knows who you are. So if you do feel that sense of feeling at home and it's a deep soul experience, it's not the externals. Mother houses are beautiful. They can be standing in their beauty and all that, but it's a deep, I could spend time with these women. I could see myself. I mean, this is usually a great indicator. I think anybody who is in this life can say they did have that. Yeah, this is home. Yeah. Is yeah. Holy Spirit, yeah. Yeah, and I uh, also really appreciate what you're saying about becoming, being yourself and how, seeing how yourself fits within the community. And it reminds me of uh, my own discernment and how um, what I was really looking for was a congregation that would help me to grow and to become the best version of myself. And as I imagined my future and all the different ways that it could look, I, uh, it became, you know, I guess I just imagined certain um, elements would be limiting or confining and uh, and there was something about my own congregation that, you know, it encouraged me to think, oh yeah, that's, that's going to be a place where I, with those women, somehow I will flourish and will grow. And goodness gracious, that has totally been my experience. So, right. Trusting our intuition, trusting the uh, God's guidance too. Yeah. Thank you. 
And for me, it's our, this sister that my first friend in this community who I now live with, Donna. She's a dreamer, she's a maverick. I was like, if this woman made it through Vatican II and all that stuff, and she's still here and has been able to chart her unique path. So this community gave her the space to do stuff that nobody else was doing to foster a child. She fostered a son. Wow. And uh, this is through all the developments of religious life from a very rigid kind of model to where, but she was able to do this. I said, if she, and she has been doing this for more than 60 years, yeah. then it's a kind of community that will be able to create space for me because uh, mm -hmm. I also know that I'm a very free spirit and sometimes dance to a different beat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both, sister. <laughs> yes. So, so it's always a small indicators. Like for instance, I love bright colors. I think anybody who knows me knows I wear bright colors. And I change, I used to change my hairstyles a lot. The listeners, please forgive my vanity, but yes, I used to change my hair a lot. But it's when the sisters in the mother house see me and they laugh and they're like, oh yeah, this is Mombi, you know? <laughs> and there's no judgment. It's mm -hmm. they have embraced me for who I am. And um these are the things, and I know this is home, but on a more serious note is that ability to create space for you to pursue the, the call within the call, like how you've been called to serve. Yes, you're a sister of the precious blood, but the call within the call is uniquely yours and that they have allowed me to take these paths I've taken even in the short time I've been with them. This is, this is how I knew that this is the right community for me, mm. that um, they will not try and uh, fit me into a box, but they will be like, okay, Let's explore this. This is new to us, but let's explore it. And um, yeah, that gives me a lot of hope and, and joy, yes. Oh, I love it, yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the things you do. I know one of the things you do is you're a writer and you help out with the Jesuit refugee services. I know you're a graduate, uh, like myself, of, of Catholic Theological Union. And I know you're involved in restorative justice and reconciliation. So am I forgetting anything? <laughs> Those are the I don't know. Uh, yeah, let's not list everything I've been doing since COVID began. Because, <laughs> okay. uh, it's also been a time of self-discovery about mm -hmm. things like writing. I always knew I could write, but I never pursued it as anything uh, serious or share to share it with people to read and until uh you gave me the opportunity to take over your your column in global sisters report and i wrote and um that has grown into being a regular contributor then uh u.s catholic approached me to write and i uh, also did that and i discovered that here yeah, all these thoughts i've always had um that tend to come out in very intense conversations that I think sometimes I lose people when I have these musings that come up at dinner time or stuff. Poor, poor Sister Donna, because sometimes I'll walk across into her room and then subject her to my thought process. I'm an extrovert, <laughs> you know? We think, we, you know, we see the pieces forming when we are speaking them out and right. the person who has to listen, they sometimes suffer because they're like, okay, so writing has given me that space to order my thoughts and to, to pursue these things that keep coming up and which have been coming up more and more. So I'm very justice driven oriented. Yeah. I was on retreat recently, which was in Michigan. It was an area 
a farming area, beautiful and um, lots of orchards and different things. Then one day on my walk, I discover some mattresses thrown be below some hedges. Hmm. And uh, I look, so I walk, it bothers me so much. So the next day I walk by and take pictures of the mattresses. And then I also noticed that day quarter potties. And so it strikes me. Then the third day I'm driving, uh, I'd gone to the store and I'm driving and I see um, about 50 uh, migrant workers. And then it all connected because these places are so far from the cities or urban places that when they come in the summer to harvest, they are sleeping out in the open. Wow. And so ordinarily this thought would have stayed and troubled me and it would have come up in conversation with a few different people, then what next? But now with writing, I put them in my notes and queue them up and eventually they will grow into articles and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so um, that is one of the blessings of COVID is this writing articles. For me, it's very different from academic writing, which I've also gotten more involved with, but articles are more easily accessible by such a wider audience and they can be on and the turnover period is short. So for instance, the paper that I presented in Nigeria last year at a theological congress, it's, yes, it's, it's been published, but the book is only coming out now. So it's been a whole year. Mm. And then that limitation of it's a book, you need to buy an entire book, how many people will buy an entire book? So articles for me give a lot more exposure and they can be about emerging issues. So that, that has given me a lot of joy. So the other bit is that when I came to CTU, uh, Catholic Theological Union, my focus uh, was reconciliation. And um, I was very blessed to study under Robert Schreiter. He's a precious blood priest and he's like the guru of reconciliation. And so my interest in reconciliation grew. He, he, he teaches reconciliation. It's this course he has crafted out of his practice. He has been a reconciliation practitioner for years across the world. And at that same time, uh, because I was doing my practicum at Precious Blood Ministry of Reconciliation, I got circle trained. And because I'd spent the gap year between congregations working a lot with, with refugees through the UN, all these pieces started coming to my head like the healing. As I said, we are all wounded in different ways. So one, uh, refugees and displaced peoples have a lot of trauma. There's there's no getting away from that. Then the limited resources in psychosocial health. There's no way you'll ever employ enough therapists to serve all displaced peoples because those numbers are growing with each and every day. And these situations are becoming prolonged. Displacement is prolonged. It used to be refugee camps were established for four or five years. Now people are, three generations are being born within refugee camps. So then I do the circle process and I see the circle process mimics so much uh, of dialogue and community practices in many indigenous cultures. So this became the uh, object of my capstone project and it was how do you use our circles as a durable psychosocial solution for refugees? As I'm writing all this, I have this dream of I'm going to then approach uh, a refugee agency and ask them whether they can give me space to test it. Mm -hmm. So the way Refugee World Act works is that there's a global compact for refugees, which means that UNHCR oversees all displaced peoples in the world together with IOM. So Mombi cannot- I'm sorry, what's IOM? 
uh, International Organization for Migration. And the acronym before that, UN? Yeah, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. Okay, thank you. So Mombi cannot just wake up one day and, you know, swing by a refugee camp and say, oh, I'm here with, with no. <laughs> <laughs> so UNHCR and IOM give permissions to any other NGO that works in a refugee camp or settlement, unless you're working with urban refugees, but most refugees are in settlements and camps. So they are managed by this UNHCR or IOM. All these other agencies uh, save the children, blah, blah, blah. They get even uni, even the other UN bodies like UNICEF, they get permission from UNHCR to be there. Mm -hmm. uh, the World Food Program, UNHCR has to, yes. Okay. So there are all those layers then, but. Having worked with the UN, I knew there are non-religious non, non affiliations. And such a big part for me with doing this capstone was the spiritual aspect. Um, and a lot of displaced peoples, this is their strength and their solace is their faith. So there was no getting away from that. So anyway, I'm like, okay, eventually I'll finish CTU and we shall figure it out. But a friend of mine I've been sharing this uh, dream with told me that uh, the JRS uh, boss, top, top boss, was coming to give a presentation at Loyola. Why don't you come? Yeah. So I went and it turned out to be a really small gathering. They were talking to potential donors and he had come with the JRS US country director. Jesuit refugee service. Yes. JRS. So we are there having these conversations, you know, those uh, cocktail things, you know, mingling. and. When I'd left my previous congregation, I'd actually interviewed with JRS in Kenya, but I didn't take the position for a number of things. So I was joking about it and telling him why I didn't take the job, it is seen. And so I told him about my capstone and he said, oh, we just made a commitment about two years ago to focus on reconciliation. Mm. I said, oh, really? Uh, so I said, uh, would you give me a job? He said, why don't you send your resume? <laughs> so he gave me his card. So I sent my resume, the year ends, I've had nothing, uh, 2019 begins and this is my last semester at CTU and I'm starting to panic a bit because I'm like, what next? I like planning ahead, that's my life. So I'm like, what am I going to do with myself? In March, I get an email and it's just like, I'm so sorry, I got your resume. Can we talk, do you have time this week? This was like a Wednesday. So we agreed to have a Zoom with this lady I had not met on Friday. Uh -huh. So I come into the Zoom not knowing what to expect and we chat and she's, she's, she was very kind, very, very amiable and we have this conversation and she tells me how, you know, she's piloting these reconciliation projects in different camps in Africa, blah, blah, blah. And um, she doesn't really have a big budget, but, and then we talk and then she says, but I also would not, I don't want to lose you as a resource person. And I'm like, is she already talking as if, as if I have a this potential potentiality for a position? And it's like, uh, yeah, you know, we maybe as a consultant for now, I think I can squeeze some money out of the budget. And that conversation is what led me to doing consultancy work with JRS. Um. And by the time I was graduating, my first trip was going to be in August or uh, to Nigeria to do a conflict assessment. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
that has led to other opportunities, which of course came to a screeching halt with COVID-19. I had two or three trips lined up, so those could not happen. But our, it has also broadened a bit because when I went to Nigeria to give that uh, talk at the Congress, I met a bishop who also invited me now to come do reconciliation training uh, to some of the dancers and staff in Malawi. Mm-hmm. And a, a lot a lot more uh, opportunities were starting to bubble up in areas outside of the refugee circles. So it's not always that I do circle training. Sometimes it's just to go and give like a, a workshop on the basics of reconciliation. What, mm-hmm. what is reconciliation? What is restorative justice? Mm-hmm. And um, I enjoyed a, a two day workshop that I did on that with um, faith refugee and host community faith leaders in Uganda last December. Um, and uh, it's in North Uganda. So the refugees are all from South Sudan. Mm. Uh, and I like that dynamic that uh, because Uganda has a very different model for refugees. They don't do camps, they do settlements. So the refugees live amongst the host community. Mm-hmm. So it was great to be able to work with both parties because you know, there's a secondary tension that arises when new people come into a community where they already scarce resources. And so it was great working with faith leaders. And mm. I love working with GRS because I never have to put my faith on the back banner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We do yeah. talk about faith because it's faith, it's a faith-based uh, organization, but it's also not only Catholic. We recognize all faiths and, and honor them and respect them. So, and they also work in small teams. So like when we did the conflict assessment, my experience working with the UN, it was, it could become very bureaucratic, very impersonal. Mm-hmm. But when I went in to do the conflict assessment in Nigeria, I, I was so used to the UN model, but it was so nice. Like at the airport, uh, you have one of the staff members meeting you. And then when we went into the field, we were, two GRS staff members from Europe joined us. And then there were three local staff and sometimes four, but we, we were buddies and we were all doing the work together. And every evening we would um, find, we were in some really remote places, find a place to eat or order food and have it in our rooms, but we became buddies. And then we had all these amazing conversations in the cars in between the different places we were traveling to because it was a two-week conflict assessment, and we spent almost every single night in a different town. Mm-hmm. But we would have all these conversations on faith and stuff, and I enjoyed it so much. That just being like a community, mm-hmm. and everybody pulling their weight and working hard to pull this report together. It is, for me, one of the best um, examples of good stewardship of resources, because they do so much with so little when you've come from the UN context where they have huge budgets, you know, and so many restrictions and structures and policies that sometimes stop you from having individualized attention or care. But GRS is so different. And being able even to, before a meeting, say, let's pray. Those things you don't do where I was before. So that has been amazing. Yeah. Wow. Wow. What a great example of, yeah, community and uh, really, you know, service on the margins for God's people and the collaboration. And um, I love that stewardship of gifts. I'd like to go back to some terms that you mentioned that I think might be um, worthy of some definition for our listeners and maybe for myself. <laughs> you said uh, reconciliation 
and restorative justice circles. I think those were the terms you used. Uh, and I'd love to hear how you define those. So defining reconciliation for me is pretty simple. It's uh, restoring right relationships. So reconciliation is not always about two parties or two individuals or two communities. There's that reconciliation, which that's why reconciliation and healing for me means the same thing many times. That reconciliation with self. Sometimes it just begins with we having to be gentle with ourselves and allow us to to have compassion on ourselves, to forgive ourselves for things that have happened. There's also a reconciliation with God. For people who have gone through lots of trauma, uh, your relationship can, with God can become very shaky. It, how do you allow bad things to happen? These are questions we find everywhere they suffering, like which God would allow this? And they, I think I was reading a book once, just like after the Holocaust, a lot of Jews lost their faith. Mm. And I think this happens everywhere. Uh, I know this happened in Rwanda because you, you question so much, you question so much. And any Christian on their walk with God has reached those points. Why, why did you take my mother away from me at a young age? We ask those questions. Why did you let a young child get cancer and suffer a painful death? We ask these questions. So there's also that reconciliation that is ongoing with God in trying to fathom this um, being who is not tangible, mm -hmm. this being that is sometimes seems mythical, prove yourself, God, are you really there? But then, then there's a reconciliation between parties where there's a victim and a perpetrator. And there are four components, and I borrow uh, Lederach's model for this, that reconciliation cannot happen without peace, mercy, justice, and, and, and truth. Mm. And this is in the Psalms. You know, mercy and truth shall embrace, peace and justice will kiss. Mm. And those four have to be there. But what happens um, around the world, every growing day, there's greater power imbalance Every now and then somebody comes up and says, but the powerful are hurting the powerless. And what happens is that so many of us rush to the peace and mercy part. And so a lot of peace building, peacekeeping are, does not result into true peace. If two factions are fighting and they send in new and peacekeepers, by their show of power and presence, there'll be some sort of peace. But is that true peace? It's negative peace. Hmm. Because we are stopping from perpetrating more violence because we are scared. We are scared of this show of people. And at that time, we are displaced and also who's providing food. So how can we go against these people who, who hold the power of life or death over us? Mm -hmm. I could also say today to you, Julia, I will not, I will not retaliate even though you did ABCD, and we assume there's peace. Reconciliations hope seeks to take it to the next stage. First of all, the importance of truth telling. So our courts of law usually focus on what happened, where did it happen? Yeah, how did it happen? But we never ask the why question, why? And superficially, the whys can be, that's not a good reason. So. You meet a mother 
who stole a bunch of bananas from a farmer's market. The why could, I hadn't eaten in two days. It's a very valid reason. Mm-hmm. But a continuous why will then be why. Why in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a country of abundance would a mother with two children be going hungry for two days? Yeah. Why? The why, first of all, also just ripples forth. It's not just about the individual, but also the community. Have we failed? Have we failed each other? Have we failed when in one side of town, supermarkets are throwing away day old bread um, and putting them in dumpsters that are locked so nobody can access them? Yeah. And the other side of town, we have people lining up for five hours in food banks. These are the realities we are living in. So the why question comes. The why is what helps us to see ourselves in the perpetrator's shoes, that by for the grace of God, that could be me. The why of, I stole because in the neighborhood I grew up in, if you don't align yourself with a gun, you're as good as dead. Mm. And this is what the, the older gun members told me to do, is to steal. It, this is survival. It's not because I like stealing or I was even interested in the money. In fact, I did not get any money from it. But this is for me to stay safe so I can walk the streets. That's the why. So that is what we'd say with truth telling. Mm. But it's both sided and it always starts with the victim. And the victim says, when you broke into my house, it was not just about these material things that you took. Mm-hmm. It is a woman, how you feel unsafe knowing a man has been in your space and you could have been violated. Mm-hmm. Or it triggered me because I've been in a, such a situation before and something bad happened to me. So the wound I'm feeling is not just because you took a TV and I don't know, a computer. Mm-hmm. It is the re-traumatization and knowing just that no matter what I do, I'm not safe as a woman. Mm-hmm. So it gives a chance for the victim and perpetrator to see each other as human beings and how that at different times in our life, we cross those lines. That as victims, we have been perpetrators in some times in our lives and perpetrators have also been victims. This is a cycle of abuse we talk about. Mm -hmm. That chances are many perpetrators have been victims at some point in their life and so Pain that is not transformed is transferred. Mm. This is what we see all over the world. So a huge part of reconciliation is healing of memories where a victim can make the shift to survivor. And this process is very personal. We cannot accelerate it. Mm -hmm. We cannot demand forgiveness from the victim. Mm -hmm. Many times that's the only power they still have. Mm -hmm. It's to deny you that forgiveness. Because remember, so many abuses are power relations. This is sometimes the only thing they can hold on to. So you cannot demand it. So what restorative justice seeks to do is this. If today you break into my house, I will call 911, you'll get picked up, we'll get a court date. They will look at uh, legal precedence and uh, your history. Have you been a previous offender? That will also be influenced by all the biases we know exist in the criminal justice system of 
race and stuff that intersect and you'll be sentenced. I will get perhaps a sense of peace because there's something about human beings and wanting to be separated from those we consider to be evil or to be different. But sending somebody away for five, six, seven years, yes, can be a component for restorative justice. But what restorative justice does is make the victim an agency in determining what justice look, looks like. So it's a long process of dialogue. And so, yes, serving time might be part of that because we also live within these legal systems. But um, justice to that person might just, might also mean once they hear their story is that come and do some community service. Or if you broke my windows, come put in some labor to put them back up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Rebuilding is really what I hear. Rebuilding of, of, of the relationship, the community, um, because there was harm inflicted. Now, what can we do to heal that wound and make something, like, make something right again? And realizing that harm to the individual harms also the community. Mm, that's good. We don't exist as islands. No, yeah, right. God made us for, for each other to be in relationship. In all of this, what is discipleship for you? Doing as Jesus did. Mm. I mean, there's so many parables that tell us how we're supposed to be about bringing about the reign of God here, here on this earth, and not as an afterlife being that we use to keep people in subjugation. It is aligning ourselves with the poor, the suffering, the vulnerable, and and what we don't understand is that there are some vulnerable people, suffering people that are easier to align ourselves with. Mm. Who doesn't have a heart for a foster child? Who does not have a heart for a homeless family? Who does not have a heart for refugees? When you're being told to have a heart for people who have been incarcerated for murder, it includes those. Yeah. It includes the untouchables or the unmentionables in society that people would prefer to see locked away. It aligning ourselves with those. It is all the components of Catholic social teaching like fair and just wages. How do we fight for them? How do we show solidarity? And it is keeping our eyes cast wide. It's global. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that by being concerned with the with the issues of people in countries far away from home does not diminish your concern. We are people who have been created so wonderfully that we can hold plural issues at once. And I feel that there's a constant move nowadays to make us one single issue people like, and, and, and this concept that charity begins at home. Yes, it begins at home by just not just stay at home. It is a both and. Mm. and, and just as the way social justice issues are intersectional, our response needs to be intersectional. Mm. U.S. food aid, for example, it's, it's something that's so, I mean, concrete. It's a simple thing we do. 
as through the United States, through our government, we are feeding the hungry throughout the world. And oftentimes there's a reaction or people will argue against this because they'll say, but there's people hungry here in the United States. What are we doing? Da, da, da. We need to get our own act together. But really what Christ is calling to us to in this global society, in this modern world, is this dance of both and. We are working for in, living in charity and justice locally and globally, aren't we? And don't buy into the scarcity story. Right. God created enough. enough in this world for everybody. So spend some time exploring who's hoarding. Who are the people who are hoarding yeah. the resources of the world? Yes. Amen to that. Whew. There's a lot to get into there, right? And then the sins of greed and why do we hoard? And whew. Yeah, there's a lot. lot to pray and think about and, and ways that we can grow as a church and as a human society. So uh, my friend, last question for you. What's messy about all this for you? Messy? Messy. Yeah, this is messy Jesus business. What is messy is, I think every now and then when you're so cognizant of um, the problems in this world, you can start despairing. <laughs> like, how do we even make a dent in all this, you know? Right. That's a messiness. The messiness is uh, trying to discern God's, God's will and my ego separating those two. They can get very confusing sometimes, you know? Mm. Uh, the messiness is trying to look at the common good and not what is Mumbi's good or Mumbi's idea. Mm. And doing collaborative work because mm -hmm. that is painstaking. Reconciliation work is painstaking. And we're at a time where we want fast solutions, things at our fingertips. So it is discovering parts of myself that I still don't know when and they are pointed out to me by people and you're like, oh, some of them are not so pleasant. It's, <laughs> these are the messy things, but the messiness is what makes life beautiful. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the messiness yeah. is what makes life beautiful. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> and for me, it's also more freeing, right? <laughs> if we don't have to keep everything neat and tidy there's a little bit of relaxation in that. There is. There is. Oh, thank you, my friend. Thank, thank you, you Julia. Me today and God bless you and all you're up to. Glad we're on this journey together. I am too. you to join me in this contemplative moment, where as Sister Mumbi and I discussed reconciliation, I would like to read for you an adapted version of a prayer for forgiveness and reconciliation from the Thomas More Center. Gracious and merciful God, the problems facing our human family are very grave. We are confronted daily with our addiction to violence, our hatred, and our greed. We are heartbroken. It is so easy to forget that your son Jesus is always the good news and that he has given us the remedy for our brokenness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. He spoke so clearly. We ask your Holy Spirit to remind us of this again and again. We ask you for the gift of hope in our lives 
and know that we need to turn to one another for the confidence and assurance that we will emerge from situations that in the short term seem hopeless. Banish fear and anxiety from our hearts. Help us to affirm one another and to remove the barriers that seem to sour our relationships and keep us at a distance. Prompt us to be beacons in the present darkness and especially beacons to one another. We are all guilty of some selfishness and we need your help to stop contributing to the larger greed that tears at our world. We believe in the power of your grace to change our lives, and we ask that we will be open to your transformative grace. Bless us with a peaceful spirit and a desire to be reconciled with one another. We pray all this through your holy name, Jesus. Amen. That's another episode of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Sister Julia Walsh, with assistance from Cherish Bedzinski. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, could you please do a few things? Share with your friends, subscribe wherever you find your podcasts, and leave us a review. Plus, I'd love it if you could support us on Patreon. Thanks! Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. Thanks. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.